All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, so the main question we're going to be asking ourselves today and you really is, are you a threat to democracy? Well, chances are, if you've done anything the left doesn't like, you're a threat to democracy. Did you vote for Trump? Threat to democracy. Do you think the Electoral College is a worthwhile institution? Threat to democracy. Do you believe the United States Senate should exist? Threat to democracy. We'll be talking about that and a lot of other ideas on this perspective on democracy. And we're going to explain what the left's perspective is. And we're going to try to do it justice. But then more importantly, we're going to equip you with the arguments that you need to defend the constitutional republic that we actually live in. And obviously, because it's also Tuesday, we're going to be talking a little bit about Thomas Sowell, who is a national treasure and not allowed to die. That was a shameless merch plug right there. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Arguments, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. And we want to thank you for joining us on the show today. If you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe and like button. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's topic. If you're on the audio platforms, especially Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating with a review. It'd be much appreciated. All right, quick introductions for new listeners. I'm Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good person. Sitting across from me, my beautiful wife, Tina, queen of the bees. That's right, amateur beekeeper. And then we have our... Resident historian, now bald, um, did not lose a bet. Did that on purpose. I actually think it looks pretty good. Christian Hines. Hello. You're, you're looking at it, it's it's kind of a badass look. I, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> well, like you, it's half right. It's bad. But <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So that's enough of Christian and the uh, gang he recently joined. And then, of course, we have our esteemed producer, the guy that helps make all of this happen, Nicholas Hamilton. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Nick. Oh, oh gosh. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Alrighty. Well, take it away, Hamilton. Produce. Well, we have an interesting article today, and this conversation about democracy can go in many different directions. But I want to point out an article from Vox that was published on January 25th of this year, and it's titled, The Four Threats to Democracy. And there's four of them. One, the threat of election theft. Two, the threat of minority rule. Three, the threat of voter suppression. And four, the threat of the irresponsible party. Interesting conversation to be had here. Well, I think it's interesting that their first threat is the threat of election theft. Like, isn't isn't suggesting that the election could be stolen or ripped off? Isn't that like no no talk now? I thought that's what got Trump kicked off Twitter. I I thought so. Of course, I went back and I saw a whole bunch of interviews with like Hillary Clinton saying, "You can be the best nominee. You can get your party's nomination. You can still have the election stolen from you." Be like. But like what I find more interesting is actually the last one. Of course, does anybody want to take a guess which party (laughs) Vox suggests is the irresponsible one? Well, I I, I don't even need to read the article to just immediately know 
you know, what they think the conclusion is. For oh, that. spoiler alert, it is. Box. Well, mean, it, it's the whole idea that an irresponsible party, in fact, there was another article, I think Brookings Institute did something similar, and they were talking about the democratic threat to democracy. And it was the idea that people could elect, uh, you know, politicians that are anti-democratic. I'm like, oh, yeah, like like in Germany <laughs> or Italy. <laughs> well, I, to, to be fair... It's true. In Italy, they didn't actually elect Mussolini. He just marched on Rome with an army. That's, okay, that's true. Italy was a little bit different, but um, but I did I did write a paper uh, for grad school actually this past a uh, couple months ago on the collapse of the Weimar Republic. Got an A on it. Well um, done. And I, we might get to this later on in, in the episode, but any comparisons that you might see the left not even see like might it. Mm. The left does this all the time. Everybody resorts to Hitler eventually when they're trying to make an argument. Right? It, it, there's actually a, a, a yeah. phrase for there's it. There's an internet rule law. for it, yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, what happened, and, and I, I wrote a 4,000-word paper on it, you know, passed with distinction, 4.0 GPA, et cetera, et cetera, about the, not trying to, like, brag, but, like. <laughs> We're so proud of you. I'm kind of awesome, but, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm really into this topic of, yeah. like, the, the collapse of democracy in Germany in the 1930s. And the reason that I'm bringing it up is because the, the left does this all the time. Oh, my gosh, Trump is Hitler or the mm -hmm. Republicans are the new Nazis or whatever the phrase is. But the conclusion that I came to when I wrote this paper was basically that what happened in Germany in the 30s is really unique. And. Quite frankly, it can't happen today in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because the constitutional mechanisms that we have in place in our country are things that didn't exist in Germany yeah. in the 1930s. Their constitutional structure was in some ways poorly designed and made it easier for a party like the National Socialist German Workers Party, mm -hmm. a.k.a. the Nazis, to actually take power. And so it's kind of ironic that you get on one hand, the left is always trying to say we're, you know, one election away from losing democracy. And yeah. they're implying that, you know, the, fa the fascists and the Nazis are going to take over. But on the other hand, when you actually dig deeper than just the hyperbolic statements and you look at the structure of the Weimar Constitution versus the structure of our constitutional republic, we actually the founders got it right, I feel like. Oh, no, I, and I, it's the left. Yeah. I'll end with this. It's the left that's actually trying to dismantle the constitutional yes. structure. The same party that's warning us about an imminent fascist takeover yeah. is trying to dismantle the constitutional structures that have, in, in many ways, prevented such an event from ever taking place. Well, I think, so let's look at these four things real quick. So the threat of election theft is, again, I, I find it's not that it's not a genuine threat. Obviously, there are elements of both parties that believe election theft is a genuine threat. And the question has been, what do you do about it? Well, the the conservative response has generally been, well, you you need to make sure that you know the people that are voting, you know, have proper voter ID, and you need to make sure that you're actually like, you know, we have processes in place to where you can actually secure the ballot, and we're not creating an environment where it's really really easy to cheat or or stuff ballot boxes. But the moment we talk about that, they move to their third threat, which is voter suppression. Right, it's this whole idea that well, no, if you put any if you put any sort of I don't know if restriction is the right way. If you put any sort of safeguard that might make you do anything more than tweeting in who you want for president, then you're you're engaging in voter suppression directed toward minority populations. And then there's the, the this whole idea of the threat of minority rule. Let's be honest about what that is. When they say that, when you look at this article, when they're talking about the threat of minority rule, what they're talking about is they don't think it's right that someone can win the popular vote, lose the electoral college, and not be president. Because they, they, they will make this statement all the time. We'll say, well, the... 
the electoral college is undemocratic, to which I usually respond to, yep. And it was intended to be if you, and if you actually understand like the underpinning of the constitution and why our republic formed, you, you have to understand that there was a very important reason why the electoral college was put in place. This wasn't arbitrary, but of course, what's their explanation for the electoral college? Oh, it was racism. That, that's why the electoral college was racist because that's like the fallback plan for, for anything. It's like, well, it was, it was racism. And then the whole threat of the irresponsible party is, you know, again, we're going to elect somebody that doesn't love democracy as much as Democrats do. And they're, they're the overall threat to democracy. But I think my biggest frustration with all of this is it, it's not that election theft can't be a problem. It's not that voter suppression can't be a problem. In fact, voter suppression was a huge problem in this country in every state run by Democrats, right, for decades, for like 100 years. But to equate the sort of voter suppression that they were engaging in with, hey, here's a free photo ID. You need to show up with this when you vote so we can verify that it's you voting and nobody's voting for you. To call that, to put that on par with like ridiculous poll tests in the Jim Crow South where they could turn away black voters because you didn't pass the poll test. Like to put those two on the same plane is just horribly intellectually dishonest. It's also the bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, let's, let's just be honest. I mean, yeah. the left doesn't actually take this to its conclusion because they kind of want the public that's hearing their talking points to kind of fill it in in their head themselves. Yeah. But what the left is effectively trying to claim whenever anybody on the right or just anybody in general says, you know, I support voter ID laws or I support, you know, auditing the voter rolls or I, I support, you know, putting in checks and balances to make sure that, you know, a ballot is cast by one person and one person only and that we have a chain of command to track them all the way to the point that they're being reported. The left is basically saying if you support any of those things, you are a racist. Yeah. But what that implicitly is meaning is that they genuinely think that black, Hispanic, Asian, any minority mm -hmm. voter or minority citizen in the country is somehow too stupid to get a free voter ID yeah. and use it in order to cast a ballot. It it truly is the bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. The left just doesn't take it to that point because it yeah, would look bad on them it. if they yeah. actually did oh, but it. But one of the one of the funniest things I saw, I can't remember who did it, but it, it was the whole man on the street thing, right? So the guy goes in there with a the camera and starts asking the question, do you think voter ID laws are racist? So he goes on to a college university and every single white student is like, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we think so. Then he goes into a black neighborhood in, in like Queens and asks the same question. They're like, no, I don't. Like, Do you know how to get an ID? Yeah, you go down to the DMV on 4th Street. Like, everyone's like, well, what do you think of the people that say that, you know, it is harder on people of color to be able to attain an ID? Like, I think that's ignorant. And it, it's amazing, but that's what's being fostered within these college campuses. And you see this reflected because it's, it's the only demographic that Joe Biden is doing better with than he was on Election Day is suburban women with a college degree. Like that's the one demographic suburban white women with a college suburban white women with a college degree is like the only demographic he's doing better with. But it's, it's amazing. Me. You go on these college campuses and it's, it's always white liberals that are like, Oh yeah, they wouldn't be able to figure this out without us. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure they can. I'm, I'm pretty sure they can figure it out without you. Um, but so basically Democrats being racist yet again, just kind of sticking with history, aren't we? That's uh, it's paternalism. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I would oh, describe it as paternalism. Over the weekend, I was uh, spending some time watching the Young Turks YouTube channel. And if you're like, 
Hamilton. Why, why would you pain yourself? Why, why, why would you do that? There's a couple good reasons, and one for me in particular as a content creator, someone who is consistently creating you know videos for YouTube and things of that nature. The left has historically always done it better, and so it's oppo research. We'll call it that. Right. And I, I find it so fascinating because they use the term democracy so differently than we do as conservatives. And I think on a, a macro scale, because they, they see democracy as the defining factor in whether or not the future of America will be successful or if it will implode. Oh, I think it's, so I think it's more than that. I, I think when they're talking about democracy, I, I believe they see democracy as the primary way that you arrive at moral or just uh, outcomes. Right, I, so it's not just the future of America. In fact, I would say a lot of people, they don't... <laughs> They have a negative viewpoint of America. Now, they sure. might like where they live or they might like the geography of America, but they have a negative view of America and a negative view of our systems of government because when they talk about a threat to our democracy, half of them think the Senate is a threat to democracy. And and so I, I think it goes beyond just political consideration because on that same, I know the Young Turks video you're talking about, and the same video they're talking about democracy within the workplace. Sure. And, and so the, the question that I always have for all this is when they want to carry out democracy, and they almost use it as synonymous with freedom. Mm-hmm. In fact, you saw an article when Elon Musk was buying Twitter. I think it was the Washington Post had this weird article where it said, you know, he wants, you know, or, or like the weird position of more freedom and less democracy. It was like, okay, well, wait a second. Freedom and democracy are not synonymous. But to hear the left talk about it, you, you notice they don't hear, I almost never hear anyone on the left talk about a threat to our freedoms right? or a threat to our liberty. I most always hear it as it's a threat to democracy, which. That's because they like to use democracy as a might makes right situation in order to bend those they disagree with to their will. Well, I don't. I, honestly. No, I, I don't disagree. That's, I mean, I you look at, look at the whole COVID situation and uh-huh. everything else. I mean, now that they've lifted mandates and all of that. Everything they want is at the, you know, they want it to be um, forced on other people because they really think that they're right. I, I think there's, I think they look at it from the perspective of, you know, the, okay, a decision has to be made. The most just and appropriate way to make that decision is to have a majority vote about what we're going to do. And then it's for everyone to abide by what the majority has decided. Except for the fact that, None of us went to the polls to decide whether we would have mask mandates. Well, they look at they look at that as well. No, you did that through your elected representative. Oh, so you they mean see that as a an representative. Well, but okay, but here. So this is one of the things we need to talk about because sometimes I think conservatives confuse these two. Well, right? so, also keep in mind that the COVID mandates weren't necessarily done by uh, any kind of elected representative. Oh no, vote. It was, well, it was mandates. Well, uh, yeah, but at it was first. Okay, but they would argue that. You voted for a chief executive. The chief executive used emergency powers, which were voted on by the legislature. I mean, they can walk that back. Here, here's here's the issue. So they're that okay with a dictatorship as long as it was elected via well, democratic they, okay, election. So, so again, here's what I'll say that when I get into conversations with someone on the left about this, and I talk about distinctions between a republic or a democracy, they will usually, res- the ones that really study this, will come back and say, Nobody is advocating for a pure democracy where every decision is decided on by every single voter. That's not what we're advocating for. What we're saying is, is that within our elected representatives, they have to follow democratic processes. How else are you going to create laws? And that's how we carry it out. Now, that sounds a lot more reasonable. Here's where the problem is. 
right? It's when they extend that they, they extend that decision making power to everything. Right. We did it. We did a whole like why minutes video on this right. where it was nobody here would ever eat at a restaurant where they w operated off of democratic processes. And people hear that. They'll be like, well, what do you, what do you mean a restaurant? But if you walked into a restaurant and you said, okay, here's the menu, but you don't get to order what you want. You get to cast one vote for what everybody in the restaurant's going to eat. And that's how this, that's how this one works. And you can't vote for your favorite thing. No, no, no. You've got to vote strategically to get the least offensive thing on the menu that you would want right now. And that's how the restaurant works. If anybody said, Hey, well, gosh, if you don't like that system, then you're against democracy. People look at you like you're a moron. Okay. But that's the sort of reasoning that's being extended into every aspect of our lives. And so I, I don't think the left is, I don't think the left is necessarily saying, you know, hey, we want every single voting age American to vote on every and whatever the majority says. That's what, but they do believe that the government's power should essentially be limitless, provided that it's elected with a majority. Well, the, part of their reason, I believe, is because they tend to value the collective over the individual. Right. Um, there's a lot of articles that have been written about extreme individualism, radical individualism, um, and they kind of talking about the threat of ideologies that elevate individualism over the collective. And that's, again, kind of what you saw during COVID where, you know, they wanted, they, they didn't want you to have an individual choice of your own health. They wanted to mandate everything. They wanted to mandate a vaccine. They didn't even want to give you any kind of way out. Mm. Um, and they, they wanted to be able to mandate the mask and everything else. And it was all given under the guise of, well, this is so that you don't infect somebody yeah. next to you. And this is you doing the the Your social part. good. Right, exactly. And, and for a long time, they did the same thing with the vaccines where it was, oh, well, you need to get a vaccine so that you can't spread this. Mm -hmm. Because if you're vaccinated, you can't spread it. And of course, we all know that's complete fake news now, right? Mm -hmm. um, we know it's getting spread by everybody who catches it. It's ridiculous well, to think it's not. And so- the idea that they could put that blanket over just about any situation they want to, any kind of um, mandate, they could do it in the name of public safety. And now individualism goes away. And so uh, I think the democracy idea is sort of a group think masses kind of uh, idea where, you know, these groups in all these areas adopt similar worldviews and, and similar opinions, and they just enforce them on everybody else who well, and then, still wants to be an individual. Yeah, and then anytime you're fighting back against it, you're now fighting against, you're anti-democracy, right? And you're fighting against the good of the collective because the mm -hmm. collective decided this. Sure. And, and why would you, and, and that's why I say, I don't think this is, I don't think this is simply a debate about political philosophy. I, I think this is a very, very different set of worldviews with respect to where we get things like objective morality. I was going to ask, what do we think the left's belief system is that has led them to this conclusion that the collective and what the collective wants is superior to uh, what we might find better within the system that we have? Well, I, I think in some way, I mean, so to be fair, right? Sure. You, you can look at this from a, a Obviously, if we were all going to sit here and decide, hey, we all want to go out to dinner together, where should we go? 
and three of us want to go in one area, one person wants to go someone else. Generally, we'd say, okay, hey, all four of us are going to go in here. We vote and we go. Because we would look at that as, okay, you know, that, that was fair. We had a process. Because the primary thing was we all wanted to eat together, right? That was the primary consideration, not are you hungry? Do you want to go? We, we had already established that. Now it was just a question of, of deciding where to go. Sure. Okay. Okay. But if that's not the initial question, right? And it's like, well, the three of us voted that the four of us are going over here. Oh, well, I'm good. I don't want to go. No, no, no. You have to, or else you don't like, you don't like democracy. And you're paying for it. Yeah. And, and you're, and now we're going to vote that you we also, also have voted to pay. that you're paying for yeah, it. Yeah. We also well, voted that you're Well, here's the problem, though, is it's, it, in a real world example, it's not you have to or you don't like democracy. It's you have to or I'll make a lot of force you. Yeah, and if you right. don't, then there's going to be ramifications. Yeah. Well, and that and that's where the violence comes in, right? And that right. that's the part too that I, I so I, I think it's a, I think it's a moral framework. So again, to be fair, we can all see we can all think of scenarios like to include electing our representatives. I don't think I don't know a single person that doesn't. I don't know a single person within the conservative side of this discussion. That doesn't think, well, yeah, we should vote on the people that we want to represent us. And when they get to, you know, Richmond or Washington, D.C. to vote on something, they should vote amongst themselves on particular bills to see what happens. Right. That process seems generally fair, not because we think it's going to produce perfect results, but because it's generally fair. The distinction becomes. When we talk about, well, what should democracy be applied to? And this is the part where when it comes to the left, I don't know that I don't know that there's a whole lot of areas of our life where they don't think democratic principles or processes should apply. And and that's and again because I think they almost make this like synonymous with freedom. You you really saw this you, I mean Andrew Jackson used to talk about it a little bit with respect to democracy, but Woodrow Wilson I would say is when you saw kind of like a historical change in the mindset of Americans on the, how they talked about their country it was like we're going to make the world safe for democracy as if democracy was synonymous with freedom and it is not right. But if you believe that, if you believe that not only is the moral way to arrive at decisions, but it's also synonymous with freedom. Well then now, if I oppose something that you've democratically decided to do to me, I'm anti-democracy and I'm anti-freedom. Well, that sounds like the sort of person you don't mind applying. A and little as you force said, to. you're also amoral. Amoral. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because you they, went against the, the larger morality of the collective. They so, do very much link virtue to the ideology. So I, um, I, I won't read the entire thing. I won't even read from it, but I, I wrote a short essay probably five or six years ago about this, the same topic that we're talking about today. And I feel like that a lot of like terminology gets thrown around, but no amount of like linguistic makeup can really hide the fact that at the end of the day, the reason that the left places such emphasis on voting and democracy and and views that uh, w with such high esteem. And I'm not saying that I don't view voting yeah. with high, like I sure. like living in a society where I can vote for elected officials rather than being just Told, imposed on yeah. me. Right. But the reason that the left places it in the position where it does is because at the end of the day, the left views the mechanisms of politics and government as a means by which people can become better people. Yeah. It, it is this idea that, that, people are kind of lost in the wilderness and unless they have a leader that can come along and guide them towards a better future, hmm. then they're going to continue to be lost in the wilderness. Sounds and kind of like a cult actually. <laughs> yeah. Except it's a cult where admittedly, again, you can, Tocqueville wrote about this yeah. when, when he talked about, you know, in, in, in the U S 
you know, they're not going to really have like a, a military style, style like Napoleon dictator ruling over them. It'll be a soft dictatorship. It'll be one that they're going to impose on themselves. They're going to vote it into office. And this is why you get like, for example, you know, the, the, the big terminology that people like Bernie Sanders and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and also political figures in Europe use is democratic socialism yeah. because they right. want to differentiate from traditional socialism <laughs> traditional socialism is traditional socialism is explicitly authoritarian explicitly authoritarian it is you know the 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 you know the, the ruling proletariat dictates how everything is going and you don't have a vote on that if you're not in the ruling class then you're not in the ruling class now socialists would still say yeah but we have good ends we're just i mean Actual classical socialists would say, yeah, we're not in favor of democracy. You know, we, we're going to seize power through revolutionary means, mm-hmm. right? The, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Democratic socialists threw in that word democratic because they wanted to differentiate themselves from basically the Bolsheviks in Russia um, or other, you know, pro-revolutionary style socialists that thought that you seize power through the bullet box, not the ballot box. But at the end of the day, the only thing that is differentiating democratic socialism from classical socialism is the idea that you're having 51% of people impose these policies rather than any arbitrary number as long as they have enough guns that they can take power. And so when you start with the premise that, well, we, we have X as our end state, you know, whatever it is, you know, worker control of the economy, you know, whatever it is, um, that's our end goal. And then you assume that, well, you know, the best way that we can go about doing that short of spilling a whole bunch of blood is if we just convince 51% of the public to vote for us and then we're going to impose those goals. For any means necessary. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly any any person, any group, any political party, any institution, any law, any constitution that makes it more difficult for you to mobilize 51% of the public in order to seize power and justify it by saying we're the majority and majority rules is not just a a you know system of checks and balances it's a flaw within the system this is why the left ultimately at the end of the day despises the constitution Mm -hmm. this is why the left despises the u.s senate this is why the left despises the electoral college this is why the left ultimately despises the 10th amendment and the idea that you have checks and balances between states and and the federal government because each of those things can be used in order to blunt what is effectively mob rule. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you read James Madison's Federalist Number 10, he talks about the danger of what he calls factions. And what he's really talking about is mob rule. Yeah. What he's really talking about is, is raw, unadulterated democracy. This is literally why the U.S. Senate was created. So you was, would say democracy has the tendency to lead to mob rule. Yes. Oh, actually, I, 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 I would... so. It is politically toxic. Luckily, I'm not an office holder, so I will say this. It is politically toxic to criticize democracy in any way. And people on the right want to defend democracy because they view it as as an inherently good thing. But if you actually go back and you read well, some of the, the comments from the founding fathers. And I think you, one of the best was John Adams. He goes, democracy never lasts long. It soon, it soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. The problem is this, when people talk about democracy in terms, there's the actual definition of what democracy is, and then there's the popular understanding which of is what democracy is, right, which is voting. Mm-hmm. So if you say anything you know, hostile toward democracy, it's because you don't like voting or it's because you want, you want some sort of dictatorial power. 
what they what they don't seem to understand, and again, this is where this this goes back to a fundamental point that I think has to be made, because I think it I think it really rests at a foundational difference between not everyone on the left and the right, but a lot of people on the left and a lot of people on the right. It's where do you get your sense of truth, objective moral law, all of those things. Right. If you are a secularist or, or an atheist, right? the question is, there is no objective moral law within an atheistic framework. You, that doesn't mean you can't have some sort of you know, morality, but the idea that it's authoritative or it's objective and that it applies to everybody, that can't exist within an atheistic framework. No, okay? you will hear leftists sit there and say, if I can, well, I don't need a God to have my morality. No. Um, if I can look at myself in the mirror and feel good about what I've done, then I know that it's right. And I'm thinking, Hitler probably looked himself in the mirror all the <laughs> so, time a little bit and felt real good about what he was doing. And it's just insanity. To, that's just full-fledged well, but, sociopath. So the, so the question is, and again, if, if, you have, if most people on the left don't see themselves as sociopaths and do believe that there's such a thing as right and wrong, the question becomes, how do you arrive at what is right and wrong? We vote on it. You you go through democratic processes. Now, what's interesting is that they'll be the first to admit that democracies have gotten it wrong, right? They, they don't, there was yeah, all that's why of, they need to be put in that's charge. That's why they need to be put in charge because, right. and that's the part where it's like this circular reason. It's like, okay, well, wait a second. What's the objective moral framework that you're operating from? And they'll usually, they'll usually go back to something like this utilitarian concept of, well, the most good for the most amount of people. Who decides what's the most good? Oh, well, right. the collective does. Yeah. Well, what if the collective decides that 49% are going to plow the fields for the 51%? It, I've just met your threshold for the most good, for the most... And this is the problem with... The, so, the popular conception of democracy is, as Nick said, people voting. Am I saying I hate people voting? Of course no, not. No, no. I want to be, I don't want somebody to rule over me and point a gun at me to sure. get them, to get me to do what they want. I want to be able to elect my public, you know, officials, but I'm ultimately, I'm not pro-democracy. I'm pro-Republican system of government because I think there's a difference between republics and democracies. In a republic, you have checks and balances. You have the 10th Amendment, you have states, and you have all these things that can, blunt mob rule from imposing horrible consequences on people just because they're in the political minority. Well, I, I would agree. I think on the macro scale, we could agree with them that representative government and voting are good things. Yeah. They are good things. But on the micro scale, I think we couldn't disagree more. We've got the family unit, the church, the local community, which can do more locally for uh, the people that are around us. But I want to move us into the Making the Argument segment, which is, is America's democ American democracy under threat? And I have a first question here because I think we need to define our terms, like Nick says often, and define real quick for the audience the true definition of democracy. Uh, well, democracy in its purest sense is majority rule. Um, you, you can now, again, in the larger, broader term of democracy, that can either be through each individual casting a particular vote for a particular course of action, or it can be people voting for people to represent them within a framework of government to where they also use democratic processes in, in order to make certain decisions. But essentially what democracy is, is majority rule. I think that's probably the, the simplest way to break it down. Um, and, and again, to Christian's point, to Tina's point, nobody's saying that there aren't plenty of circumstances or plenty of times where majority rules might not be the, a perfect way to solve things, but it's 
it's certainly better than a lot of the other options, which is a certain particular group of people get to decide or an aristocracy gets to decide or a dictator gets to decide. You know, that's the part where there, I don't think there's a, a great deal of disagreement. Like we, we all agree that yes, when it comes to talking about a particular rule, using the majority rules process for that um, is appropriate. And here's, here's, the, here's the thing though. If it is a legitimate function of government, right? That's the part where, again, I think there's greater disagreement because there's a lot more areas for conservatives where, you know, we're saying, well, it's not that we don't, it's not that we don't like majority rules when it's inappropriate. We're saying that this is not a situation where majority rules needs to work itself into the question. So I think that's a good point, but I'll, I'm going to propose a quick hypothetical question that a leftist would get. You know, so so let's say that an audience member that's listening to this is like, okay, Nick, that's a strong argument. I could use that, you know, when I'm debating a friend or a family member that says, you know, well, Republicans are threatening democracy. And then you bring up this argument that, no, we're not against democracy. We're against mob rule. And we want majority rule when it comes to le a, a legitimate function of government. So then the question is, well, then what's a legitimate, what's a legitimate function, function of government? Of government? Right. Well, and that's the part where they usually come back and see, see, we use, we use, um, we use different majority processes in order to determine that as well. But again, the thing that I would go back to is if you look at the way our constitution was set up, there was a couple of things that were taken into consideration. I think this is really important. And this is what distinguishes between what I think the left holds up as, as the standard, which is, and, and honestly, I don't know where it ends with them. I don't know if like they just want to get rid of the Senate and we only have a popularly elected House or they would be fine electing a president that would make these decisions on behalf. Like, I don't know what their ideal is, but to go back to that point, we set up our constitution in certain ways to where once certain things were established, it's like, okay, you can't just willy-nilly change this because 50% 50, 50 plus one of the population at any given time has decided, you know what, we should go over and take these people's stuff. Like, well, no, there, there's property rights. Okay, well, I still want to take their stuff. How do I do it? Well, now you got to go through an amendment process to the constitution, which where it takes two thirds. And, and the whole idea was, it, it was about setting up processes to establish what legitimate functions of government were, which can, to your point, can be changed, right? But then the other side of it was to also say that there are certain things that are so essential to your being as an individual, whether it's like your freedom of speech or conscience or religion, things of that nature, that these are not something that we want to subject either to government power or to just the simple will of the majority. There, there has to be a much more deliberate process before you get to these things. Now, they could come back and say, Oh, okay. Well, that's still majority rules. Well, okay. Maybe a super majority, but then our response back is, okay, then why do you keep trying to get rid of it? Why do you keep trying to put things in the realm of majority rules? Because here's the, here's the other moral problem that we need to address here. Even if it's majority rules, you're still talking about applying force and violence towards someone that disagrees with you. And so theoretically or, or philosophically speaking from the conservative perspective, we, we generally take the position, or I should say the liberty, liberty perspective, not even necessarily the conservative perspective. We generally say that, look, you are free to live your life and make your decisions for your life, what you want to do, provided you're not infringing on the rights or liberties of somebody else. Once you cross over, now there's involuntary human interaction, right? There's aggression taking place. And now there's a potentially appropriate place for the government to step in and say, no, you can't do that. You can't infringe on somebody else's rights. But when the left looks at it, it's more of, well, no, 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 there's all these wonderful things that we could do if we could just get everybody on board with what our mission is. And 
since we know we can't get all of you on board, but if we can get a majority, well, then now we feel like we have the moral right, the moral um, legitimacy to compel you to do what we want. And if you don't, you're the bad guy. And so I, I think whenever we're talking with somebody that would come back and say, well, that's still majority rules, we still need to, well, actually, no, the, we, we've set up several processes to where it's not a simple 50% plus one, which is democracy. And we also have to have a larger discussion on, on moral frameworks. Because if you're going to accept that whatever 51%, 50% of the population plus one, if you're going to accept that whatever they want, they can do and they can use force to do it, what happens when you're on the other side of that equation? Well, they were not too long ago. Oh, Granted. That's that's when they start putting you on trains and sending you to special <laughs> places where they will compel you uh, if you survive. They will re-educate you. So one thing that I think needs to be brought up here is that um, it just it blows my mind that after four years of Donald Trump in the White House, you would have thought – that the same people that literally spent four years nonstop complaining about this man in the White House and, and basically saying he's the second coming of Hitler, this is a fascist dictatorship, we're never going to have a free election ever again, democracy is dead. The Washington Post changed their freaking headline, their tagline for their newspaper to democracy dies in darkness after Trump took office. That's how far the left took this cult, alleging that their, their political opposition what was was literally a dictatorship in waiting. You would think after four years of this guy in the White House that when they finally came back and they, they took back Congress and they took back the White House in 2020, you would have thought that there would have been a conversation within the Democratic caucus in D.C. of maybe we should rein in the powers of the presidency. Maybe we should rein in the powers of the federal government so that way nobody who takes power like Donald Trump, the man who we accused of being a fascist dictator for four years, if, if somebody like him ever takes power, they won't be able to do all these terrible, mean, nasty things that we constantly complained about for four years. No. Instead, their <laughs> entire narrative when they got back in office was, well, thank God that guy's gone. Now, now we get to use all this power to do what we want. Sure. It just blows my mind that these people somehow believe that every single election is just going to produce somebody who's more progressive, more altruistic, more morally good than the previous guy. Mm -hmm. And that every single election is just going to produce a more progressive government than the previous one. By their own logic, it's not. So why on earth would you not restrain the power of the federal government and especially the power of the presidency? But by these people who genuinely think that if they lose the next election, it'll be a fascist dictatorship are literally supplying the rope that will be used to hang themselves because they are not restricting the power of the presidency and they're not restricting the power of the federal government. And yet they think that the opposition are literally quasi Nazis that are about to take over and completely destroy the country. Again, you, you think that they would have learned some lesson from that. And I don't think they've learned any lesson there. What's that quote? But you know, the, the bourbons, you know, never learned anything, but never forgot anything either. <laughs> yeah, uh, the and, but yeah. I got to point out, though, to be fair, our side is equally guilty. I would say I, I see Republicans all the time that would love for the Republican to have all that power. Sure. And they don't. And, and I see folks that don't think, oh, wait, you know, gosh, if Hillary Clinton had this power or if yeah. Joe Biden had this power, I wouldn't really like it. No, they just like what they like. And they don't like what they don't like. And they just use whatever argument's going to help them win at the moment. But sure. then it's a it's not a fixed mark. It constantly moves. And so um, I really think that 
that's one of the issues we have going on is that it's not like one side does this and the other other side doesn't. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh no, no, no. I, I think both I think both sides are 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 guilty of it. The difference is, I I think when <laughs> the difference is this: when the Democrats do it, they're actually carrying out their their mission statement. When Republicans do it, it's actually heresy. <laughs> All right, or or it is heresy with sort of. it, is, it is heresy with respect to our platform and what we're supposed to stand for. Now, again, we got a lot of heretics, right? I'm not I'm not saying otherwise, but I, I do think there is a there's a fundamental difference between when when Democrats run on this, run on expanding government power, expanding government programs. They're telling you what they believe. What frustrates me about some Republicans is that they'll run on the idea of individual liberty, less government intrusion, and then they get up there and what you find out is like, oh, no, no, they just have a different version of government sure. intrusion mm -hmm. that they want. And yeah, I think that's, again, totally intellectually dishonest. The, the best way to describe the heretic wing of the Republican Party is they're opposed to big government until they're in power. Yeah. The only well, big government, the only <laughs> big government that a lot of Republicans support is their government. Yeah. And I, I agree with Nick that that is the big problem, because let's be honest, we saw a lot of Republicans for years that just kept wanting to give Trump more power, sometimes even when Trump didn't even want it. So, like, it, 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 there's definitely a both sides ism there that's at play. But I do think that the motivations are different between the two of them. Mm -hmm, definitely. Go, going back to legitimate functions of government, though, right quick, we can look at the Constitution and know what the legitimate functions are government, of government are. Now, the leftists, though, will, like you said, Christian, will disregard anything that would get in the way of, you know, obtaining majority rule or a majority vote. But I think the founders likely had reasoning uh, that could shed light on why those legitimate functions of government were put in place. So, Christian, I'm interested in knowing more about, you know, what what did the founders think of democracy and why did they um, construct the Constitution like they did at that time? Well, this might not be super popular to say it, but a lot of the founders did not like democracy, at least in the way that we would actually define it, not the popular conception that the general public has. If you define democracy as people voting, yeah. there were plenty of founding fathers that were in favor of that. Now, granted, there were much stricter rules with voting, and many of those things are good things that we got rid of. We expanded the suffrage to more than just property-owning men that were white. Totally in favor of that. But <laughs> Bold move, Christian. But, <laughs> well, no, it makes sense. If you're, I mean, yeah. if you're part of the country, you should. If you're an adult and you're a citizen, you should be able to vote. Absolutely. Yeah. But... The, the, the thing is, is that the, the system itself, not the action of voting, that wasn't necessarily the problem. It was the consequences of mob rule. So, like, go back and, and look at, like, what James Madison's vice president, Elbridge Jerry, wrote about democracy. He basically said that it is the coming of mob rule. He, he kept pointing to instances in classical Greece of, you know, Greek city-states being taken over by demagogues and then just being driven into the ground. After Alexander the Great died, the, the demagogues that were running Athens, Demosthenes, basically whipped the crowd into a frenzy and said, yeah, let's go declare war on the Macedonian Empire that outnumbers us a thousand to one and then they got completely decimated and you had other figures in Athens at the time that were like are you nuts we're gonna lose everything if we fight the Macedonians and they did and ironically they actually had their democracy taken away from them when they lost the Lamian War um, so in many ways as Nick was saying from that quote 
democracies can end up killing themselves eventually through bad actions. And I think that's where our founding fathers were getting from. When they created our republic, they modeled it after the Roman Republic, not after Athens or some of these Greek city-states that were just pure democracies. They tried to create checks and balances in order to allow people to vote, but prevent mob rule from taking over. And that's what James Madison is getting at when he wrote Federalist Number 10 and he warned about what he called factions. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you just go look at, I mean, here's a couple quotes right here. Hamilton, right? Who when Hamilton was actually oh, kind of not this a, Hamilton, not this, not Hamilton, this Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton. He goes, if we incline too much toward democracy, we shall sh- shoot into a monarchy or some other form of dictatorship. Jefferson said, Democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where 51% of the people may take away the rights of the other 49. James Madison, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Right, And again, part of the, part of the wisdom here, and this is... It's amazing because the same people that were screaming in like the 80s and 90s, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And we're like kicking Western civilization out of like universities or or out of like the required uh, component of universities are are the same people that were there said, we want democracy, but we don't want to know anything about, you know, how democracy evolved over time within these city states or within the Roman Republic or within feudal societies or within how because that is the hard work that a lot of people, not just the the founders that we all can name off, but a lot of the hard work that was done within that generation was actually trying to identify why is it, like they wanted more representation, they wanted more individual liberty, they wanted more free expression, right? They wanted these things at, at a level which had been unprecedented throughout human history. They wanted all of it. Not to say they executed it perfectly. Obviously, you got slave owners in there, stuff like that, but that's what they wanted. So why did they set this up, right? This is the whole Thomas Sowell, right? Another thing Thomas Sowell always likes to say is, before you start going ripping down fences, you might want to ask why they were put up. And Madison articulated a lot of this when he said that, look, part of the problem with democracy and part of the problem even with republics was that they got to a point where the, the power was overly centralized and, and the, the wider it got and the larger the, the demographics were that you were trying to represent, the harder it was to do it from one centralized location. They recognized that a lot of the democracies like quickly spiraled out of control as it became about warring factions trying to use the power of the state to either get goodies for themselves at the expense of someone else or to punish another faction by now using the, the, the power of the arm of government in order to do it, right? The legal framework for aggressive violence. Right. And so everything was designed around how do we prevent those things? Like, how do we maximize individual liberty, property rights, personal decisions, while also respecting the fact that living together in society is going to require some rules? And that's why you see a combination of democratic processes when it comes to electing people. But then you have the House of Representatives, which is responsible for one aspect of legislation. The Senate, which is responsible for respecting the interest of the state. Because whether the left likes it or not, we're not just a nation. We're a republic of republics. Every state is its own individual republic. And that sometimes gets forgotten in this this discussion about the national will. right? You have the presidency, which was only supposed to execute certain powers. You have Article 1, Section 8, which articulates, right, specifies what the federal government is supposed to be doing. You have the judiciary as its separate branch. You have the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution, which essentially articulates that anything that we've talked about here as a, as a special um, right protected within the Bill of Rights, 
should not be assumed by the government that anything not specifically mentioned here doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, right? The, the the whole the default position of the federal government was supposed to be if it has not been our articulated in writing that this is our responsibility, it is left to the individual, right? And then the 10th amendment to the states. So it was, it was this elaborate process built off of, you know, years of work and understanding certain historical realities that some of our friends on the left apparently just want to forget, which is to say that this is a balance between protecting individual liberty and your right to live your life the way you want and respecting that in those situations where we might bump into one another, there needs to be a, a moral framework or there needs to be a legal framework that adjudicates those differences. But if you're just going to say, nope, the way we decide, the way we decide morality and the way we decide when it's okay for me to use force to get you to do what I want is majority rule. Dude, that's a mob and there's nothing noble about that. And there's nothing just about that. Stick, why don't you go ahead and sum up this argument for us? I mean, we're going to be in conversations, our listeners are, where they're you know, discussing this topic with friends and family. How should we approach this? So that's a good question. So let, let's sum this all up. Here's the bottom line. When someone comes to you and says, American democracy is under threat, the first thing that you should ask them is, what do you mean by democracy? Okay, again, define your terms. Democracy is, at the end of the day, majority rule. And majority rule can be perfectly appropriate for certain things. All of us like the idea of majority rules when it comes to determining who our representatives will be that will decide what the laws are, which we all have to live under. But the other thing that we have to understand is democracy is not synonymous with freedom. And if you don't have certain checks against arbitrary government power or mob rule within your constitution, within your political philosophy, what you're essentially opening yourself up to and everyone else is the idea that if 50% of the population plus one decides that this is the course of action they're going to take, then they're now allowed to use legal violence against you. Because at the end of the day, what government is, is the ability to use violence against others in order to achieve its objectives. And what we should all be very, very careful about when we're having a discussion about democracy is does 50% plus one make it just? Does it make it right? Does it make it moral? Or should we leave the vast majority of decisions up to individuals to be able to live their lives the way they want, provided they're not infringing on the rights of others? And the reason why we were set up not as a pure democracy, but as a constitutional republic, which uses democratic processes, was because we wanted to try to find that appropriate balance between protecting individual liberty and understanding and coming up with a fair process for creating certain rules that we could all live under in those situations where we had disagreements or when somebody was infringing on the rights and freedoms of somebody else. But if our government descends into nothing more than if I have a majority, I can do what I want, and that's the only moral justification or legal framework I require, then understand that what you're not advocating for is freedom. You're simply advocating for mob rule and violence. How about some follow-on research? So one of the uh, one of the articles that I looked at um, as we were looking at this whole question was from Foundation of uh, Economic Education. I, I think they do a, a great job kind of expressing some of this. They did a, um, a book review on a book uh, called Liberty uh, in Peril. And it was democracy and power in American history. And this guy actually goes through the process of explaining some of the problems with the way that we currently talk about democracy. And that, again, that whole idea of defining our terms, right? Democracy is not just voting. A democracy is, is an application that we use 
in order to determine who violence can be used against and under what circumstances. And so we should probably be careful about where we allow the government to apply that. So that's a good one. Liberty and peril, democracy and power in American history. A couple other ones too that I always recommend. Read the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. Um, again, and we always talk about the Federalist Papers. Read the Anti-Federalists as well, because you're going to learn about some of the concerns that the Anti-Federalists, these are the people that didn't, didn't want the federal government, didn't want the federal constitution, not because they didn't want more liberty, but because they were afraid it would eventually be used as a mechanism to take their liberties. Oh, wow. So the Federalist and mm -hmm. the Anti-Federalist Papers, also the debates on the constitution. You'll be fascinated to, I, you know, I, I have a, I have, I think a neat distinction that I represent James Madison's district, yeah. the Virginia House of Delegates. Um, and so I've, I've visited Montpelier many times. I've gone on the tour many times. I've studied Madison. You would be shocked to hear some of the debates that were going on within the Constitution. And they weren't public at the time, and that was actually very intentional. So I would go back, look at the debates on the Constitution, look at some of the arguments that were being made, because what you're going to find is not a bunch of people that were just simply trying to protect their own you know, privileged position within society. You're going to find really good in-depth debates on trying to balance that position between ordered liberty and chaos and violence. There's one last recommendation sure. that I have, um, and it is, it's not out yet, but we just did a Y minute recently about what caused the collapse of the Roman Republic, not yeah. the empire. Everybody, there's, there's tons of stuff written about <laughs> the fall of the Roman empire. And it was not Christianity that caused the fall of the Roman yeah. empire as much John as given was wrong. Um, Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon, but, um, sorry. Why is it John? <laughs> it's okay. But um, the, the fall of the Roman Republic is one of those like major events in history that is kind of just ignored, I feel like, in many ways. And everybody always talks about There's so many it's comparisons. It's overshadowed by the fall of the empire. Yes, That's and there's so many comparisons about. between America and Rome. Are we Rome? There's like every week there's a news article about it. Yeah. But if we're Rome, we're the Republic, not the empire. Yeah. And so... I, I check now. that out when it's published. It's it comes not, out tomorrow, right? It, it, yes, it's supposed to come Wednesday. out tomorrow. So it's not out yet, but um, check that out when you get a chance. It's sure. over at the Y Minutes. You can see it on Facebook or YouTube. Yep. Um, so that should hopefully be a pretty cool episode. I, I think there's so many, there's so many like just rich historical things to read about this. And, and like Christian said, like everybody always has the question, like, are we the Roman empire? Are we the new Rome? And you know, it, it and again, there's there's certain parallels. Obviously, Rome at that time was like the world superpower, at least for the region it occupied. You could obviously argue that the Chinese, but they were so far separate with one another, they didn't really come into contact much. In fact, there's a really interesting story of the Chinese government at the time trying to reach out to Rome. And so they sent a delegation and it took them years to go from China. And then they ended up, this is the funny part, they ended up in, I think, Tessaphon. Mm -hmm. So Tessaphon is like right around modern day Baghdad, right? So they're in Iraq and they're trying to, like, they are so close. They're literally like a two week ride to the from, Syrian from Tessaphon to the Syrian border of the, the Syrian province of Rome. And instead they go south and they talk to, um, they talk to an owner of a ship and he's like, oh yeah, it's going to take six months to get there. And so they turned around and went back. And so you never had that official envoy. The, the reason that they did that though, was I think it was the, it, I believe it was the Parthian government at the time who was like the arch rival of the yeah, Romans. And they yeah. were like, they did not want contact oh, no. between Rome and China because they yeah. controlled the trade route and they yeah. were able to tax it both ways. So it's kind of funny how that played out. Yeah. But, but it, but it, uh, it it just it goes back to this idea of when when we look at when we look at these questions of you know political philosophy I, I'm I'm always fascinated by I'm always fascinated by people that will look at this and just say okay well here's the moral precept I like 
And so now we're going to impose it without ever looking at it like, do you think you're the first person that had this idea? How was it applied in the past? And I'm not suggesting we should look at the past and say, okay, well, we can't improve on anything because it didn't work back then. But you might want to consult it in order to figure out what the problems were. And again, that's what I think our founders did such a good job of. Um, Well, I do think that the proponents of democracy have done that and they have reached into the past to decide that the way to fix the problems with democracy that could arise is to add a dash of socialism. (laughs) And so now we've got democratic socialism taking uh, the, taking over the conversation. So, um, so I guess they recognize that there were some issues and they're just going to fix it with some socialism as if socialism doesn't have its own. When I I think issues, that's the other thing that I find interesting about all of this. And, And it's another one of the reasons why when you watch like that young Turks video, they put so much emphasis on democracy within the workplace, because ultimately I don't think that this is, I don't think this is fueled by some sort of passion for greater individual liberty or property rights. It's actually just the opposite. It's just that democracy is now the word being used to push a socialist framework of society. And anybody that says, oh, that's, you know, that's hyperbole. No, it isn't. Not when you're telling me that, well, we want to democratically run healthcare and we want to democratically run education and we want to democratically run more of the economy. Well, what do you mean by that? What you mean is I want the government to have more control over these things. And when they talk about like owning a company, um, I got into this with a, a socialist once. Like, all we want is democratization of, of the company. So, okay, you got two problems with that. Step one, it wasn't democratized when you started working there. So, what are you going to do if you don't get what you want? Are you going to violently take things by force? No, 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 no. We'll just do it through the government. Oh, so yes, you're going to violently force. take it by force, but you're going to have the government do it on your behalf. The the second part about that is is that. Ultimately, what you're saying is you really don't have any sort of substantive protection of property rights because now everything is decided on democratically. And and one of the things that you see within that is that you will have a faction, you will have a 50% plus one that wakes up to the fact that, well, wait a second, I, as long as I'm part of the majority faction, I can make these other people do what I want. And it's moral because after all, it's democratic. And, And that's why I think, again, a big part of the the discussion we were having was not just the the left's passion for democracy as you know an, an ideal way to decide certain government functions. I think they look at it as the the foundation for establishing moral outcomes. The problem happens is what happens when the majority decides something that it is immoral, and their response would be, "Well, how can it be immoral if it's the majority, right?" Well, well no, because if a majority had voted for Trump, then they would have said, "Well, we just need a better majority." Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, well, Nick, didn't Tom Sowell have many wise things to say about this he topic? He did. He did have many wise things to say about every topic. How dare you limit him to just this? <laughs> no, he actually. This is one of the quotes I like that I think is really relevant to this. He said, "To include freedom in the very definition of democracy." is to define a process, not by its actual characteristics as a process, but by its hope for results. This is not only intellectually invalid, it is, in practical terms, blinding oneself in advance to some of the unwanted consequences of the process. Now, that sounds a little confusing, and usually Thomas Sowell is very clear, but really what he's saying is, is no democracy is a process to arrive at a certain end state. If freedom is a desired end state, all right, well, then it's not the process. It's an end state. But if you're confusing the process with the end state, 
You can essentially justify anything. This is what we were talking about before, right? If democracy is morality, if democracy is freedom, well, then anytime I oppose 50% plus one of the population compelling me to do something by force, I'm not just standing against their will as opposed to mine. I'm standing against democracy and freedom. And so they're able to hijack a certain moral consciousness or moral um, terminology in service to what ultimately is just something they want, right? And if that's something they want is my property or my factory or my money or whatever it is, now they can say, well, we did it democratically. It must be okay. Well, I mean, the, the freedom aspect though, I mean, you need to keep in mind that a lot of words do not have the same meaning anymore. I mean, we're living in the midst of some really extreme cases of that, but you actually had an opponent at one time who put up signs everywhere saying to vote for him for freedom. Yeah. And his version of freedom was like freedom from want, yeah. freedom from, it was you know, It was FDR's yes. extended bill. The four freedoms. To Ben's credit, though, yeah. I actually do think that he understood freedom far better than the average Democrat. Oh, I, I would like, totally no, agree. With no that. question. I, but but that's that's actually I, kind of disturbing. I, I think he <laughs> did, um, but I, I do think that he knew his audience here. Yeah. And so that's why he was able to articulate that. But I... I I, I hesitate to say that, that a lot of these people um, are too ignorant to understand this. No, no, they're not ignorant. They get it, and they're using it. That's the, it's, it's more nefarious than that. It's more nefarious than, oh, they just fundamentally misunderstand. Well, I, 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 no, they get it. They just know how to talk to you. Yeah. And in our district, freedom is a buzzword um, because we are a very red district. People like their freedom. We live, you know, live on property. We like property rights, gun rights, everything else. And it's it's very convenient to talk about freedom and to then be able to couch it with, well, you know, freedom from want and freedom from freedom from having to pay for your health care. Well, it, what's interesting is that out of the four freedoms, because he used to talk about that, the, the FDR's four freedoms, right, was freedom of speech, which interestingly enough, the left is not as keen on. They these don't days, like that today. No. Right. That's freedom, actually freedom of they'd speech. They'd be calling is a FDR threat. a bigot. Yeah. Free, uh, well, hold on. Kind of was. But. Another threat to, to democracy yeah. is that freedom of speech. Freedom of worship. Which again, the left is not all that keen on anymore. When that actually apply, when that actually spills over outside of your house or the church, like they they don't mind so much if you believe something and you keep it quiet. But at the moment it leaves your house and manifests itself in anything out in public, even if you're not using government force, even if you're not using government funds, they're against it. So it's freedom of speech, freedom of worship. Here's the third one, which is really problematic: freedom from want, because this is this is absurd, and I hear it all the time. This this is one of the things that made Jordan Peterson famous is when the woman interviewing him in, I think it was in London, Kathy Newman, Kathy Newman said, you know, why should your freedom to say what you want? Trump, a trans person's freedom to not be offended. And Peterson's response was very good. And what he said was, well, in order to think you have to risk someone being offended. He goes, look at this case. He goes, you're asking me all kinds of questions and you don't seem overly concerned whether or not I'm offended. And it totally stumped her. The way I've responded to that before, because somebody once asked me, they're like, why does, your, why does your right to bear arms trump my freedom to feel safe? And I said, oh, you, have, you believe you have a right to feel safe? And she goes, yes. I said, so presumably I have a right to feel safe. She goes, absolutely. I'm like, great. I only feel safe if I have a machine gun. Yeah. Right? So is, are you cool now with that? 
And all of a sudden she's like, oh, well, I said, you cannot, you cannot confer a right or a freedom of or a freedom from if it actually requires somebody else to produce it. And when you say you freedom from want, okay, great. I want to be rich. I don't want to be poor, but I'm not rich. And so if I'm not rich and that's what I want, then you have an obligation to provide it for me. Right? Everyone would be like, well, no, that's ridiculous. I agree. There's many things that I want. Uh, yeah, there's many things that I want. I don't, I don't I think want. everybody would think that. What, what if I, but okay, here, but here's also the conflicting problem, right? What if I want something and you want something different and those two are in conflict? If you actually have a government provided freedom of, or freedom from want, well, then there's no way to adjudicate that difference. Oh, no, there well, is. You hold an election. Whoever gets the most votes, they get what they want and everybody else loses. But even well, then, you don't. <laughs> but now you don't have freedom from want, right? Like that's yeah. the inherent contradiction. Well, it's the same thing. The last one there was freedom from fear. Okay, I'm afraid of the dark. Are we going to illuminate the are we going to illuminate the earth 24/7 365 days out of the year because if you don't well then I'm not free from fear and you failed in order to carry out your objective. Yeah, the last two are just so stupid. Well, okay, Hitler wanted <laughs> to erase <laughs> Hitler wanted to erase people from the face of the earth and yeah. so that so should he That's have been he free wanted. to want that and have that provided? Well, I, but to their I, I get the argument. The problem with always invoking Godwin's law, though, is that it's I, I maybe it's because it's overdone and everybody always resorts to it. And I, I understand why it's used, though, because it's it, it's such an easy example that you could point to as the logical conclusion or do, end result. Do you know what it is? It, it is a it is a simplified popular version of reductu ad absurdum. Yes. So yes. if, if you're going to have yeah. to explain what that you is. Just, okay, you within bring the it to its, its, its most extreme possible yeah. con conclusion. With, within logic, there's a, there's a process of argumentation called reductu ad absurdum, reduce to absurdity. And what you're, what you're essentially doing is you're holding up someone's position and you're saying, if you believe this, this is the logical conclusion of this. And you, you, you walk it back to something. So a perfect example of reductu ad absurdum is freedom from fear. You have a, you have a right to not be afraid. Okay, I'm afraid of the dark. And because FDR is talking about this, he talked about this in the 1941 State of the Union address, right? This is this was all about carrying out government activities. If I have a freedom to be if free from fear, if I have a right to be free from fear, and you have an obligation as the government to make sure I'm free from fear, and I'm afraid of the dark, well, then you have to illuminate everything 24-7, 365 days out of the year, or else you've denied me my right to be free from fear. Right, that's that's where someone will be like, well, no, of course we don't mean that. Then don't say it. Sure. Right. If you don't mean that, don't say it because you think it sounds swell. Right. Pick a intellectually honest way to talk about this because whereas you might, whereas that reduction to absurdity is one that most people can look and be like, okay, yeah, that's stupid. It actually applies to a whole number of things. You can make it less absurd though. A really yeah. good example is. The American people after 9-11 were very afraid of terrorist attacks. Yeah. And rightfully so, did not want to be living in a society where planes could be flying into buildings all the time. So Congress passed the Patriot Act. Yeah. And years later, the many legitimate 
concerns and justifications that were used to to argue for the Patriot Act have been taken to such an extreme now that in many ways the Fourth Amendment has just been lit on fire. Sure. And and you know the the NSA and the FBI and the CIA they're spying on American citizens. Yeah. They're trying to. We just had a case in Michigan where where the federal government tried to entrap people into what apparently was a fake plot to arrest yeah. and and kidnap the governor of Michigan, and it yeah. was the FBI that was doing <laughs> yeah. it. So like. So, so this, you know, well, I'm, I'm fearful of living in a society where it's unsafe or there's a high risk of a terrorist attack. Does that mean that we should discard any sort of personal freedoms and let's get rid of warrants? Yeah. Right. Like, no, of course not. I, I want to be free from fear. And that's why you have to wear a mask on an airplane forever. Yeah. This is the problem with the whole, you know, freedom from, from fear argument. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I, uh, I think that's all, all the time we have today. But uh, this is a good conversation. No, I, as always, I appreciate everyone here. Also, I would like to tell you, Christian brought it up, and this is a really good point. If you want more information on this, if you want more information on how to make these arguments, how to craft these arguments, or maybe you want some more good like historical examples or practical examples that you can use when you're talking with somebody, because this is the big part of effective communication. It's using examples. Um, it, it's using metaphors that are relevant to the person that you're speaking to. So you're talking to the history buff. Great. We've got a great video called the Y minutes coming out. It should be published tomorrow. So that'll be Wednesday. Yep. Yeah, it'll be published Wednesday. And that's going to talk a little bit about the fall of the Roman Republic. And we're going to talk about some of the principles or some of the circumstances that led to the fall of the Roman Republic. And they're going to sound eerily familiar. I'll just put it that way. They're going to sound eerily familiar, but this is a conversation that will again, help you kind of articulate some of the problems that you probably see happening in contemporary times. And here's the good news for those of you that have no attention span, which if you're still watching, you do. So congratulations, you're a better person. Yeah. But if you don't have any attention span, they're three minutes long, three minute videos. We help you articulate a particular principle or an insight. Uh, and on this one, especially if you're a history buff too, I think you're really going to appreciate it. So go ahead and check out the Y minutes on YouTube. Also, Please like, subscribe, follow, leave us a, a five-star review and, and write us, leave us five stars and write us a review. Give us some more insight on what you'd like to see. We're going to be interacting more on the comments section. We also have some more stuff coming up in the future, not so distant future, where we're going to have some more audience partic or <laughs> more opportunities for audience participation. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Nick Freitas for Making the Argument, and we'll see you next episode. Oh, my gosh. You're so lame, Hamilton. We didn't even get <laughs> Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.